0: This episode is brought to you by Feel Free from BotanicTonics.com. Feel Free is a small two ounce shot made from kava and other ancient plants. And the feeling that it provides is incredible. It is euphoric. It gives you this sense of focus. It reduces anxiety. And it just puts you in a relaxed state in your body. Think of it as a plant-based magical elixir that can uplift your mood, increase your productivity, and give you the energy to do the things you want to do today. There are so many applications for when you can use Feel Free. A few examples are using Feel Free to get into a flow state before yoga, meditation, or exercise. People are using this as a kind of energy drink to go running for miles at a time. And it's also great for socializing. It just makes it easier to connect to people around you. There isn't this kind of background hum of anxiety anymore. It just really melts away. And that also makes it a great replacement for alcohol. So if you're ready to feel free, go to botanictonics.com And use promo code XIAN40 for 40% off. Again, that's botanictonics.com. Promo code XIAN40, X-I-A-N 40, at botanictonics.com. This episode is also brought to you by Sheath, the underwear of legends. What makes Sheath different is the pouch on the inside, Now this is a game changing invention that completely revolutionizes the male undergarment. These are the most comfortable underwear I have ever worn by far, they've got amazing designs and styles, super comfortable fabrics. My favorite is the bamboo and also the V which is a long leg athletic underwear that doesn't ride up and it supports you where it matters most. So go check out Sheath at sheathunderwear.com and use promo code TIMEWHEEL to save 20%. Once again, that's sheathunderwear.com, promo code TIMEWHEEL.
1: archive authorizing access granted accessing file
0: all right we are rolling and i'm here with my good friend michael phillip how's it going today
1: brother it's going good We waited a sufficient amount of time for my, uh, caffeine and such to fully hit. So I should be able to fire away with whatever I have, including my, (laughs) including my, uh, over caffeinated sweaty armpits and (laughs) we'll be, I'll do what I can
0: (laughs) here to serve. Let's go. That's funny, man. Well, um. I've been enjoying, you know, your recent podcast. You've been going deep into the ideas of Plato, Platonism, Platonist. All this stuff is very heady for me. It's honestly kind of over my head to comprehend. So I wanted to have this podcast with you so we could kind of break it down into layman's terms and let's understand it, you know, like yeah. from a, kind of a psychonaut slash spiritual uh, inquisitive point of view, like the people that listen to my show. I'm sure there's a lot to glean from Plato, Platonus, uh, Porphyry, Platonism, and all this stuff, but to make it a little more, you know, digestible so that we could, you know, be inquisitive and and want to learn more about it, because I've Mm -hmm. listened to stuff about it, and you know, you recommended some podcast episodes recently that I try to listen to, and the language is just very academic yeah 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 and so it's a little over my head so I thought we could maybe you know distill it down into you know I can can always understand you on your podcast so if you're able to tell me maybe more than that other podcast guy I'm gonna learn it more so I'm very much on the learning in in this episode Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know much about it myself so I'll be kind of asking questions, clarifications. Um, I do have a couple of notes written down about what I was able to distill from, uh, that podcast and some other podcasts I listened to from you and some other YouTubers yeah. about Plato and Plotinus and, uh, Porphyry and, and their, their, all their relationships to Platonism, yeah. which, uh, is very, uh, uh, again, uh, very deep, but I want to get into all that. And I have a number of questions I'm going to ask, but th- First, I wanted to just learn how did your interest yeah. in Platonism in Plato and Plotinus? How did how did you discover it? How how has it caught your interest and what is it that you're so you know passionate about learning and and going down that rabbit hole yourself?
1: Yeah, for sure. So there's a couple different ways to approach this. I think from my own you know, history with interacting with these ideas. I think I first probably came across Plato, like a lot of people, you, you know, you just you don't really have the context when you're younger to understand how any of these philosophers or these ideas fit together. You know kind of what intuitively that you gravitate toward, and then you slowly figure out, okay, these are the thinkers that really carried the torch of this idea. And Plato is not only one of the most famous philosophers in world history. He's really the representative of a lot of these ideas that have been remixed, spat on, battered by the new age, you know, but he, he was kind of like the original source of a lot of these ideas that I think have been kind of perverted and dumbed down and, and, pulled out of context and renamed and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and to give you an idea of what some of those are, I mean, the notion that we really have a soul, that your, your psyche is your soul, so it is the thinking part of you, it is this immortal essence that you have, it really is doing all these different things, mm-hmm. it really should be the central concern of a philosopher, of a person who is trying to improve themselves, trying to understand themselves, trying to understand their place in the universe. And there's a lot of interesting metaphysical stuff, there's a lot of interesting uh, what would properly be called rational, but not rational in the way that we popularly thinking, think of it, but in the way that realm of mind, like the, the rational is the realm of mind. It really is real. It really is a fundamental part of reality. It's, you don't just, ac- you don't acquire wisdom by going out in the world and weighing and measuring things. You can acquire real wisdom with just your psyche, just your mind, just your soul, and, like, deep contemplation, deep reflection. <clears throat> yeah. And there's, there's so much more than that. But, so I slowly started to piece that together over the years. And as you pointed out, I started doing a deeper dive again. And it's just a, such a deep well of wisdom. And, and I think, for whatever reason, it doesn't get the shine that some of these other ancient ideas get, like Hermeticism, mm-hmm. Gnosticism, But they're really all part of one continuum of ideas. They really Mm -hmm. all have Platonism to thank because Mm -hmm. Platonism came before those or most likely at least came before those. And then you start to, as you start to get your feet wet into Platonism and Platonist thought, you start to see, oh, Hermeticism is really pulling from the same source of wisdom in a lot of ways. Metaphysically, yeah. Gnosticism is really pulling from the same source of wisdom in a lot of ways. And yes, there are differences, and yes, there are, you know, um, competing ideas within those ideas, but they're all very similar. Yeah. And yeah, man, it's it's really, I think that one of what I think is the purest forms of what some people call the perennial philosophy. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that there is this unified wisdom that goes way back. Like some people call it the golden chain of thinkers that goes way back. And you can follow this chain of thinkers. And they were the ones who were like really tapped into the truth. I, of course, don't know if there really is such a thing but if there was such a thing Plato was a link in that chain. Yeah. Was a major link in that chain. Totally. And we'll get into why. We'll yeah. get into why why I, I think so. That. But did I did I answer all the parts of the the question? I think so. So I did just want to
0: ask in a general sense before I ask who who is Plato, but what is Platonism?
1: That's a really hard question to answer because it's Clearly, you know, it starts, sort of, with this guy named Plato, mm-hmm. though Plato himself was probably a Pythagorean, so that com- comes hundreds of years before Plato existed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's always interesting, right, because in the same way Jesus was not a Christian, yep. like later on people invented Christianity, it, Plato yeah. wasn't a Platonist, right? Yeah. So, Platonism emerges out of the the thought of Plato, And what we have of the thought of Plato is these dialogues, right? You know, there's all these famous dialogues. The Republic, the Phaedo, the Phaedrus, the um, uh, Credo, there's a a whole bunch of them. So that's the primary wisdom that we have from Plato. Mm -hmm. But that in and of itself is not even close to fully representative of what Platonism is. Because within Plato's school, Plato's academy... He was doing things. He was doing probably lectures, probably um, having various grades of mm-hmm. wisdom, you know, initiating people into uh, deeper secrets. And some of the primary evidence that we have for this is that this is also what he was doing in his writings. He was clearly hiding esoteric wisdom within his writings. Um, one of the easiest examples to point to is Plato's Republic. Mm-hmm. There's You know, um, anybody who has a vague idea is like, oh, yeah, isn't that the one where he talks about the ideal civilization and philosopher kings and all of these things? And yes, exoterically, that's what it is. Like if you if you read it on the surface, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. But they found all these hidden patterns within the Republic now. And Mm. some of these patterns are representative of music, some of these patterns are representative of math, so there's like these deeper hidden layers of wisdom and geometry and uh, harmony within that text wow. and that's very likely what he was doing under the surface all the time and my God dude, the level of genius you have to have and the level of thought you have to have to make some make a coherent yeah, you know, like imagine if right now mm. everything I was saying also had a secret layer. <laughs> right, like I was structuring all my words so that if you looked at the transcript of this podcast, there right. was hidden. Oh, he always every tenth word he says starts with an E, and yeah. you know, it, like it's stuff like that is what the level of genius that we're talking about with yeah. someone like Plato. Damn, and um, you know, I could just keep riffing, but one of these core ideas mm-hmm. that. I think logically you end up forced to confront when you're just thinking about reality is where does the sensical nature of reality come from? Mm -hmm. How is it that reality makes sense? Mm -hmm. And Plato's answer to this is that there's this realm of transcendent forms that we are living in a sort of lower dimensional slice of reality Mm -hmm. and we are connected to this transcendent realm of perfection Yeah, but we don't have full access to it it's beyond our comprehension it's sitting above our individual noose or our individual minds but yet our minds are descended from that perfection right and I'm I'm getting ahead of myself with jumping into this because I think it will fit better into maybe a more a uh, little bit more of a discussion of the the metaphysical picture that Plato paints. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so I'm going to pause that for now, and yeah. I'm going to let you I'm going to let you continue mm-hmm. probing probing me. I love Pro- that. <laughs> probing for questions.
0: Yes, so it it feels I mean based on what you just said before I jump in the next thing, it, you know it feels like he's trying to to get to the deepest and or higher layer of reality. Um, that was like a prime a prime focus of Plato, you know, and I assume he had, and I don't know this, but I, I would think he had a number of altered state experiences, whether psychedelic or just meditative or, you know, maybe guided through some type of ceremony. I'm not sure what they all had access to. Of course, we know that about the
1: Elezinian Mysteries. And was he yep. initiated into yes, that? Yes, he or? was. Yep. Okay. and he And he wrote about it as like, you know, one of the greatest things that someone could experience. So right. for right. anyone listening who's not familiar with that, There's very well-constructed arguments that whatever was happening at this famous temple of Eleusis, where all of these people were initiated, um, there's a very high likelihood that there was something psychedelic happening. And if not psychedelic, still highly altering through ritual in a way that we don't
0: understand anymore. Totally. And, you know, most people through the podcast know and people that are a fan of third eye drops know that both you and I have ventured into these states of consciousness many times and they are quite ineffable, but they also really capture our attention and, and make us wonder what the hell is going on up there. So back right. before all the Instagrams and Netflix is available, I mean, back then that you would have a lot more time to really Think about that, ask about mm-hmm. that, write about that, like dive deeper into that. That's something I, I, I mean, if I lived in during, during that time, I would be doing hundred percent. Um, cause there just wasn't this level of entertainment available to us like that we have today where we kind of get, uh, sucked into a lot of that. But, you know, even, even yeah. you and I, you know, do devote a lot of time into trying to understand these mysteries, but he had even more time, you know, um, and I believe he was kind of almost like, um, was he kind of like an ascetic, Plato?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, he didn't marry. He didn't have kids. Um, right, right. So, you have even more I, I believe, time. <laughs> I believe not. Yeah. So, so, so so people may not know that Socrates and Plato, or Socrates was Plato's teacher. Hmm. Um, Socrates had children. Plato did not. Mm. So I think you you have a variety of things going on with these philosophers. Some of them did have children, but yeah, he, they were vegetarian. That's another, so yeah, they lived austere lifestyles and they basically yeah. were committed to this I- idea of philosophia means like love of wisdom. So mm-hmm. basically, so throw away your idea of an academic philosopher like mm-hmm. today, just, you know, playing like weighing and measuring although we did just say plato was weighing and measuring each word he was doing it for different reasons um this was someone who wanted to have all the experiences this is someone who really wanted to use all of the tools at their disposal Mm -hmm. in their mind body and soul to understand what reality was there's some quote also from plato which i can't remember exactly right now but it's essentially that having a divine experience is philosophy so so that is flying in the face of what academic philosophy is today right Right. like that's where they're like we're not interested in that that's like theology now that's Mm -hmm. metaphysical now that's not something we can do philosophy on but Mm -hmm. for plato that was the culminatory experience of the philosopher was yes learn as much as you can Yes, you know, use all of the tools at your disposal, study hard. But at the end of the day, that's like preparation for having the transcendent experience. Yeah, And to your point, yeah, it's very likely, I think, that he experienced... Mul- like, you know, it's, it's said he was initiated into all of these different mystery cults. So right. assuming there was some sort of mind-altering event at the um, the core of these mysteries. Mm-hmm. We don't know if that was always psychedelic in nature. It could have just been ritualistic. And you know, I, when I say just been, I'm not trying to diminish it because I don't think we can, there's so many things we can't understand about the world back then because mm-hmm. their minds were so different. The way they thought about the world was so different. Right. What they thought they knew was so different. What we think we know is so different. Mm-hmm. Like, even just think about something, like, as mundane as your attention span.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's no phone to distract you. There's no screens to distract you. There's no uh, just low-hanging fruit. I mean, sure, there's low-hanging fruit nonsense. Back then, people were gambling. There were sports. There, You know, there's food. There's sex, of course. But there's not, like, what we have now, where it's just your attention is just being, like, right pulled in every possible direction at every possible moment things competing for your attention
0: mm-hmm.
1: you could just stare at the night like probably one of the f- best things to do is stare at the night sky you know yeah, and yeah. have deep conversations and Absolutely. you know things like yeah. that and if, if that was just like what even that alone you know that mm-hmm. those are such transformative awe-filled moments and right that's probably what people were doing all the time back then, you know? So, totally. yeah. Yeah. Well, it and, sounds like he was and, a
0: bit of a yogi, right? I mean, it's not like he I, was I, necessarily I practicing so. yoga, yeah. but when you're an ascetic, who's not getting married, who's not having children, who's a V, ve- a vegetarian, who's interested in <coughs> altered states and philosophy. And I mean, yeah. he's not from India in that lineage of, of yogis that many people you know, think of when we say the word yogi, but more or less, he, it feels like he was a yogi. And and one quick note was, I thought it was interesting that you said he was a vegetarian, which, you know, some people do that because they don't want uh, to, uh, you know, like cause suffering of animals. But a lot of people do that because Mm -hmm. it actually frees up a lot of mental faculty because the digestion of meat takes a lot of energy in the body. Um, and when you don't have to digest meat, you have more energy for thinking and for philosophizing and for potentially vis- uh, voyaging into visionary states and or dream states and, and that type of thing. So I thought that was interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's definitely mystical rationale for being vegetarian that, um, you know, I don't know if I do or don't endorse i do think ethically of course there's great reasons to be vegetarian i'm not vegetarian but i think it i mean it yeah. ethically i i get it it makes sense mm-hmm. um
0: i've been vegetarian there's, whole, there's whole, i've been yeah. vegetarian but I, you know actually i got anemia which is lack of iron so i had to beca- right. i had to eat meat again unless i wanted to take a bunch of pills which i didn't want to do but I will say certainly during those times of being vegetarian, um, and I will do a vegetarian diet before a ceremony um, because I want as much mental faculty as I can have. But um, yes, I think for that reason, uh, it 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 doesn't surprise me that he was a vegetarian. I, I don't know how many of these old philosophers were that way, but it's just interesting yeah. to to align uh, that you know, he was really interested in using as much of his mental faculty as possible.
1: Yeah. So I think this golden chain that we're talking about, I think it's pretty, I don't want to say it's universal, but Pythagoras, who, like I said, he is thought by most to be a Pythagorean or, Mm -hmm. or to have been initiated into the Pythagorean teachings. And Pythagoras was definitely also very much like a yogi. He was also vegetarian. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think it was Gregory Shaw, who's a scholar in this area who said, um, that pretty much what you just said, that you, you would think of a lot of these people who ran these famous philosophy schools that we still don't know the names of as probably more like guru type Mm -hmm. guys who, who were teachers, who people came, you know, came from far and wide to learn from, who were living these austere lifestyles, who were engaging in different practices, Um, meditations, like whatever, a lot of things, like I said, that are lost now, but with more of a, you know, this Hellenistic Greek kind of flavor. So it Mm might have been, you know, it might like in the case of someone like Plotinus, who you mentioned, who lived hundreds of years after Plato, it sounds like when you read his practices, it sounds much more meditative and it sounds much more yogic. But Mm -hmm. in the case of some of these other Platonists, we know they were doing things that looked more, ritualistic and magical and we're literally trying to commune with with other gods and stuff like that so yes there it was for sure more yoga guru vibe like Mm -hmm. than you know hardcore academic uh, in the way that we would conceive of it today i think i think that's probably true um though it's just, it, it's sad, man, because we've, we've lost so much. So there's a lot of circumstantial mm. evidence where you have to look at this continuum of writers, basically, to try to, to, try to understand a shape of what the truth probably is, because yeah. the, we just don't, well, we, we don't know this, but, you know, then Plato's most famous student, Aristotle, said this, so we can infer that, oh, Aristotle mentions this, so they're probably doing something like this. And this is how a lot of the scholarship from my limited understanding takes place is Mm -hmm. you take little snippets from reliable sources and then a a picture begins to emerge but still it's not a very high resolution picture like we (laughs) don't know what specific practices they were doing we don't know if it looked more like meditation we don't know if they were doing breathing exercises we don't know if they were ingesting psychedelics but it's Mm -hmm. like you know, you can you can start to make educated guesses on right. some of these things for sure. Right.
0: Well, it seems like there's like a secret history of these philosophers that we're not very well aware of in this culture. Because when I think of a Socrates and a Plato from what I've learned in school and just from what I've heard around... I never really considered them mystics, to be quite honest. I considered them to be rational philosophers yeah. in the way that we think of philosophy today, which is like, hey, one plus one equals two. You know what I mean? And like, that's what they taught. And like, wow, that is an epiphany for sure. Like, if you didn't know math and and now you know it because like someone taught you it, um, that is nothing to, you know, um, think is nothing. I mean, that's certainly something math language music you know we think of them as like the the guys that kind of brought that to the mainstream or at least back in the day but for for us to consider them as mystics meditators psychedelic visionaries you know um poets and these type of things to me is a whole new understanding of who plato Plotinus were and that type of thing um, but yeah. j- just to get a lay of the land here, um, I'd love to learn who who is Plato in relation to Plotinus and yeah. in relation to Porphyry. Who sure, are these? Sure. Who are these three guys? What do they have to do with each other? Yeah, you know,
1: yeah. So, so Pla- So, like I said, there's what we call Platonism today. You know, mm-hmm. obviously starts with Plato, but then you have this whole lineage of thinkers who come after him. And his academy stays extant for a certain amount of time in athens but political pressures and wars and all these things happen um and you know eventually power dynamics shift in the world and where um the literati and philosophers primarily live changes over the centuries so these other thinkers you mentioned, uh, Porphyry and Plotinus, they actually lived hundreds of years after Plato, but they're what are called either Neoplatonists or late Platonists. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just by virtue of, you know, when when were they placed in history, right? Yeah. So those guys are significant for um, a number of reasons. And one of the primary reasons is because, you know, you have this these writings of Plato, right? You have the dialogues, whatever, and we don't, but we don't know what they're doing. And we, one we don't of know the, how he came to
0: the epiphanies,
1: right? Right. We we know that clearly he he was, you know, a, a mystic in the way that he was having primary mystical experiences. Like he's telling you in the core of his teaching that mm-hmm. wisdom essentially is a- anamnesis. It's the it's the, it's like a remembering. It's like mm-hmm. you have the wisdom in your mind already because everything is connected because your you're noose, your mind is connected to the higher mind, the higher realms. So you can essentially confront wisdom through this deep contemplation, whatever these like mm-hmm. states that they were accessing were. Um, even sometimes in dialogue. I mean, that's kind of part of the point of these dialogues is like Socrates and all these other interlocutors are talking about a concept and then they're they're reaching like a sort of epiphany about reality or, or about, about love or justice or whatever the topic is. Mm-hmm. And, but we don't know what these deeper teachings were, but then you get to someone who's like who, Plotinus yes. who lived in Alexandria hundreds of years later, and we do have a much clearer picture of what he was thinking, what he was doing, because this other guy you mentioned, Porphyry, who was one of his students for a time, mm-hmm. also this huge intellectual badass who was like this wandering um, academic, basically, and he he was getting, he was being exposed to all these different teachers and all these different, you know, ways. Yeah. Um, and came to Plotinus and learned under Plotinus for like, several years five or six years and he and some of the other students convinced him like you got to write some of this stuff down because we like we need this wisdom to go forward Mm -hmm. so that's what became today known as the enneads which is like a great source of direct information for this stuff so Mm -hmm. if you want to see the thought process if you want to see um the the philosophical underpinnings and you want to see how yogic and psychedelic and meditative this stuff is like you read Plotinus and it's like oh my god yeah this is this is the stuff like this is the the wild like soul journeying soul ascension back to the Mm non-dual uh oneness and yeah so love that the short answer to your question is there's these lineage of thinkers Mm -hmm. and there's major kind of lesser and more well-known people on that path. And Plotinus is definitely, other than Plato, considered sort of the premier Platonist, at least Neoplatonist or late Platonist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And part of that is because uh, we have all of these writings from him. And um, he's just a very highly reputed human being and teacher. So... So did he read what Plato wrote Oh and and he elaborated on it? Yeah. So they were all, so all these Platonists were reading the, the platonic corpus of wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, And they, some of them like developed their own system. Like you gotta, you gotta read all the dialogues in this order. And then you gotta read the Aristotle stuff or you gotta read Aristotle first and then all the Plato stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And they considered that to be like a, some kind of initiation. Mm. And then when you'd get through that stuff, then you would reach a level where okay, now you know this, now you're going to come in for the deeper teachings. And again, probably most of those deeper teachings we don't know what yeah. they were. But a lot the thing that gets complicated is just like if you're talking about any of these big spiritual or philosophical movements, is there starts to be divides because Mm. the the Plotinus school is different from there's another guy named Iamblichus who we haven't talked about and Iamblichus was way more magical mystical doing rituals talking about other gods talking about um you know mixing it with other more Egyptian stuff and more Mm. like what today would look like doing like ritual magic spells and stuff like that and Plotinus was way more like, no, you don't need to do spells, you don't need to do sacrifices. It's all like in your, in your noose, in your mind, and you can yeah. connect that mind up to the divine mind. Uh, so, so it does like the lines start to get blurry, and answering the question of what Platonism is or isn't becomes the sort of impossible mm-hmm. question. Other than we know these guys were all reading Plato, and they all thought Plato had, like, divine level real wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. It, w- was
0: there a book, like, one book Plato wrote? Or was it, like, many different books?
1: No, it's, like, this continuum of what what we have from him are, are dialogues, basically. So, they're all written. He's not in the dialogues. Like, you don't, it's not Plato says this and does this. Mm-hmm. It's him writing conversations, basically, between Socrates and different students, usually. Mm. So, Socrates is usually like the source of wisdom, mm-hmm. and then the other students are, you know, debating him, or they're talking uh, about certain topics, or he's going through like the, you know, we've talked about the myth of Ur before. Yeah. the mi- Like, the myth of Ur is a story that Socrates tells in the Republic to, to illustrate a point toward the end of the Republic. Mm. Um, so, so Plato kind of recorded lectures? Yes. Both yes. both
0: the giver of the lecture but also the audience asking questions to the giver of the lecture.
1: Right, right. But it's it's pretty I mean we we don't know, but the the way that it's painted is that a lot of this is Plato's construction of trying to get to a pre-existing teaching or point, Mm -hmm. and then he does it sort of, he deconstructs it into a dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. So that you you go through this logical progression of considering different ideas in your own mind, and you're considering these ideas through the viewpoints of the different people in the dialogue, Mm -hmm. but then you're coming to this sort of like place where now you're informed and you can kind of reach this epiphany yourself of this whole chain of logic and dialogue it's like oh yeah. okay and, and each dialogue like roughly orbits one really big question and like yeah. we were talking about before this this realm of forms right this realm yeah. where things exist in their sort of perfect true structure and we can sort of brush up against them or discover them with our own minds if we're really really diligent and that's the point of his dialogues is Mm -hmm. getting you to understand the true form of love, getting you to understand the true form of justice, things like this. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so that's, that's what the platonic writings are. But then, like I said before, within that there's hidden layers, there's hidden Mm. geometric, mathematical, probably other layers that we're not even aware of yet. So yeah, it's, it operates on a lot of different levels. Gotcha.
0: Damn. Okay. So just to recap, Plato was a student of Socrates. He wrote lectures that were super dope. Plotinus came hundred year, a few hundred years later Yep. yep. and was like, I'm a big fan of Plato and I'm going to read it, understand it, and even elaborate upon it for the people of my time. And then this dude, Porphyry, Studied under Plotinus, yes, and then
1: he went off to write the Enneads. Yeah, like to compile. Yeah, compile it. He he compiled his teachings basically. Um, okay. But but there wasn't like this big gap. Like there, were, all these people were learning from someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's escaping me right now who the name of Plotinus's teacher was. But that's that's a known thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so there, so there. And it's funny because it's like, wow, this person who taught him must have been super wise, but we don't have a lot of existing any writings from them. Mm-hmm. So that that's why Plotinus becomes so important because you do have these thinkers, you know, throughout the ages. Um, but they may or may not have a lot of writings. So you only, you have names sometimes, like, you know, this guy taught this guy, but we don't mm-hmm. have any existing writings from them, or maybe they didn't have any writings. So then you you really have to go by, like, what we have access to. Mm-hmm. And Platinus is one of the people that we have a ton. And even yeah. though f- from him there's a lot of stuff from that guy iamblichus I mentioned, who's a very, very major figure. Mm-hmm. We have some things, but we have we know he wrote way more. Like we have names of things he wrote that we don't have anymore. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's just so it's just it's like it's a combination of a detective game and, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. trying to download the massive amount of information that we do have and make all of that make sense you know yeah
0: that makes sense well I know we have a couple stories that we're both familiar with about Plotinus but and I want to go into a couple of those but were there any famous stories about Plato where he did something kind of miraculous that you're aware of like Uh, did he he have any miracles did he he defy it gravity or you know anything like
1: i don't i i don't think i know of any there there may be some stories told by some of these other platonists that i'm not aware of that are Mm -hmm. to that effect one of the fun things about socrates though is that he commonly it's it's known that he would communicate with his daimon like openly yeah so he would um you know there's one there's one uh dialogue i'm forgetting which one it is right now it might be the Phaedrus. I think it's the Phaedrus. But mm-hmm. he is about to leave. And then he just stops and he's like, nope, there's something else I have to tell you. And it's because his daimon was like, nope, it's not time to go yet. Right. Um, and, he, and he realized like, oh, it's not time to go because I didn't tell this yet. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things about Socrates that's interesting is he, he openly, I don't know if converses is the right word, but he taps into that. Right. and what he said is that it it would tell him it would basically tell him what not to do. Yeah. So it wouldn't ever say you have to do this and this and you know my intuition says uh do this. It would just be it would be some kind of inner knowing that he developed when he mm-hmm. knew he was about to do something wrong yeah. or when he knew he was on the wrong path. Right. And he took that ex- as seriously as you can possibly take it. Right. I mean for, yeah. for people who don't know the punchline to Socrates' story, he, he died for his beliefs. He died for yeah. doing the right thing. Totally. Um, he willingly took a death sentence because he thought it was the right thing to do. Totally. So, yeah, so that's that's one of the things that I think yeah really, and, and this is, again, this is one of these things that modern scholars kind of want to downplay, you know, it's, you said you learn about these people in school, right? And they did, mm-hmm. didn't particularly seem like mystics. right. they're not going to tell you like yeah socrates was the guy who we consider to be the fount of wisdom to a point where we literally divide divide ancient philosophy in between pre-socratic and post-socratic like Mm -hmm. that's how seriously we take this guy and how highly we respect him he was walking around talking to what we now consider to be like an imaginary friend right yeah um But to say that, man, is like to completely gut what was at the core of these people's philosophy Mm -hmm. was that we were connected to higher powers. We are actively able to become deeper, more entrenched in that higher world. And that is the job of philosophy. That is the job of the philosopher is to understand your soul, harmonize your soul, use your soul to ascend to higher levels of realization with the extant divine mind. Like, that is what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And he knew it would be an insult against that to not kill, to not die willingly. And he mm-hmm. did it. And that's that's what people should remember him for. Absolutely. Um, so I think that that's more impactful than any, like, you know, Plato floated or Plato. Um, <laughs> but, but we do have stories about other Platonists who did supposedly do things like that like right. there's all these stories about that iamblichus guy who's a, a later platonist mm-hmm. lived around the same time he, he lived at the same time as that porphyry guy okay. Like, there's a very famous exchange between him and porphyry um we do have stories like that about iamblichus about iamblichus floating about iamblichus like pulling out these young children um from a hot spring who are supposed to be uh different manifestations of eros the god eros oh, wow. so so there are there are these weird stories that orbit these these figures right yeah and you can't you can't divorce the supernatural stuff from this lineage it, it's right. coming up all the time like it's coming yeah. up all the time in all these stories like different types of soul ascension experiences different kinds of near-death experiences different kinds of metaphysical things like i said people floating or summoning gods or right whatever the story about the plotinus's daimon that we talked about yeah
0: yeah i want to actually i want to say that one because i i think that one's very interesting There, there was a couple of kind of mystical stories about plotinus who we now know you know lived hundreds of years after plato but loved plato and wanted to elaborate on his works um that are very mystical, um, and one of which was this this priest had come to do a ceremony to uh, let Plotinus interact with his daemon, who we've done a podcast uh, very in-depth on the daemon. Definitely recommend you guys go listen to that if you're interested in learning, like, Specifically, what the daemon is, we talked a lot about that or diamond. There's a couple ways to say it, but um, yes. What was this story about this this priest that had come uh, yeah. to ask Plato if he'd like to like connect with his daemon, and then what happened there? Or uh, yeah, so some he time a-
1: yeah, so so he actually went to the temple of Isis. I believe this was in Rome, mm-hmm. um, and it was considered like the only place that was like a clean real channel for for the gods in Rome because it was like a traditionally consecrated Egyptian temple. <clears throat> so this priest basically does a does a ritual to call down the daimon or make the daimon manifest. Mm-hmm. And just a quick one-minute clarification of the Daimon is throughout the ancient Greek Hellenistic mindset, there was this whole cast of beings called Daimones. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like we should also just kind of explain what the metaphysical divine emanatory hierarchy is at some point because it just starts to solidify a lot of these ideas but for now it's this idea that you know we're in this human realm and above us there are other realms and other beings and directly between us and the higher realm is these beings called daimones Mm -hmm. so one of the core Platonic ancient myths talks about how, when you incarnate, you get this partner being, basically this partner daimon. Yeah. Uh, so, so the idea is everybody has a daimon, and the sort of the daimon is sort of the keeper of your fate, and it's the the being that dwells on the threshold between you and the higher worlds. Yeah. So, it's everybody pretty much believes that you have a personal daimon, and that there are these beings in general called daimones.
0: Yeah, an, and, image, an image that so, comes
1: to mind for people that, that that seems a little far-fetched
0: is like a guardian angel, right?
1: Right, that's the, yeah, if that's less far-fetched for some reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, that's a, that's a often, yeah, often a parallel idea, mm-hmm. or you can just think of it as a guardian spirit or whatever. Right. So he goes to this temple of Isis and they do it, this ritual, and apparently the... Um, the priest freaks out because it's not a diamond that appears; it's a god. So mm-hmm. apparently, Plotinus is such an important soul that he doesn't have a diamond; he has a god. Um, right. And there's this interesting idea that I think you would dig—that mm-hmm. there pretty much is the equivalent of a of a bodhisattva in Platonism oh, wow. among some Platonist thinkers. That you can instead of going to these higher noetic realms where you're dwelling with the gods after you die you mm-hmm. can actually choose to reincarnate and be sort of like a saint or bodhisattva here on earth like yeah. helping other people wake up mm-hmm. so it seems like plotinus was probably one of these characters that he like came down to earth with like huge force huge divine presence connected right. to him um at least that's what this story seems to be Trying to communicate if there's Absolutely. if there's truth to it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Funny idea. You and I might be that too. We might be some bodhisattvas. Who knows? I think everybody wants to believe that. <laughs> I think everybody wants to
1: believe that there's some I mean, why are
0: we so, why is our Damon telling us every day, yo, share this knowledge, you know, but. Is it our Damon or is it a mental illness? (laughs) I'm going to go with Damon. (laughs) Sexier. sexier. If it's helping you, if it's helping you, it's probably not a mental illness, but I I definitely see how they can get confused for sure. Um, I'd like to think you and I are doing all right. (laughs)
1: i hope so i hope so wouldn't it be wouldn't it be crazy if there was a reliable spell we could do to just see where our stats are like if if there if there is you know like uh like i feel like they don't do this as much anymore but when we were younger this was a thing that would happen a lot in games where you'd get sort of like a letter grade at the end Mm -hmm. like you get like a you know on on a scale from like d to s rank because it's always s rank in all the japanese games yeah um wouldn't it be funny if there was a way that we could just like peek at our stats and be like, oh shit, I'm only a C minus right now. Right. Fuck. I How was good? just
0: talking about this with my friend Payson last night and one thing we we had said is, hey, you know, we could hire some past life freaking psychic, right? But at the same time, I feel like especially in the spirit of Plato and Plotinus um, and Platonism is really what we came to is we're not going to trust that the only way to really trust is to figure it out for ourselves to actually do a meditation or a ceremony or whatever it is and ask the source directly and kind of see what answer we get. And I think, it, I think it can be done, you know, like, yeah, I don't know that some psychic could really tell you like what our grade ultimately, would be, you know? Ultimately
1: I agree, but I also think the, the reverse is true that you do need to go through sort of a graduated process of learning. And the problem is, is it's just, there is no way to do do this anymore like there was then, where you could go like, hey, I've heard this Plotinus guy is super legit. And everyone already had this idea that there were these powerful, spiritual, mystic philosophers out there and that you could go learn from them. And now there's like so many competing ideas of, I don't even know if this is real. This person's clearly a charlatan. I don't believe in this shit. I don't believe that I'm, you know, descended from Lemuria and I'm in touch with the Galactic Federation, (laughs) but I'm open to the idea that Mm -hmm. there are these higher noetic realities and higher levels of consciousness. And, but ultimately you're right, like, especially in the, in the metaphysics of Plotinus he actually believed that our soul was already up in this noetic realm, that Mm -hmm. we could essentially kind of climb back up to the true place where our soul resides Mm -hmm. through whatever these meditative practices were. And we could gain higher knowledge through doing that. And one of the reasons I like Plotinus is because he seems to want to do away with a lot of this other like the distracting kind of stuff. Like he really Mm -hmm. wants you to like go inward, go deep, get deep into meditation, um, and go through this ascension process internally with the power of your own psyche and your own soul. And I like that because it feels like he's trying to cut away a lot of the, um, I guess by, by their standards, what would have been the sort of, common superstitious mm-hmm. language and and go like really into the light. Like, lit- like literally he talks about light. He talks about all these different things that you hear other yogis talk about uh, other, you know, mystics talk about, and there's some interesting thought provoking things too, because there are stories of him traveling East with some, uh, as part of some, war campaign because he wanted to learn from those Eastern teachers. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's possible that he literally did learn some, some yogic, some meditative right. type stuff. We, again, we don't know, but, um, it, it certainly seems plausible. I would say. Totally. Damn. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. There was a couple of other stories, um, about Plotinus that were interesting that captured my attention. We did say the one about how the he didn't have a daemon. He had a god. That's certainly interesting. Um, there was another one where there was this philosopher, Olympus of Alexandria, who was jealous of Plotinus and wanted to use magic to cast a spell on him. <laughs> but he realized that Plotinus' soul was so powerful that all of the attacks deflected back onto Olympus himself, forcing him to give up. And he had realized that Plotinus had cultivated his soul to a noetic consciousness Yeah, right. that was a force to be reckoned with. That's interesting to me. I mean, of course, that's something I would love to do.
1: Right. You know, and and again, like this is (laughs) another great example of you read these stories and from a modern perspective, scholars are like, what is this shit? You know, this can't be real. But again, you come across this stuff constantly and you can't get around the fact that people were doing what we would call goatea or magic in the ancient Greek world. Mm-hmm. It was all over. People were casting spells. People were trying to curse each other. People were, you know, going to different maguses to to do different rituals and do different things. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be what I find useful and what I think has a lot to teach us about modern spirituality and the way a lot of people try to use spiritual language today Is that there was clearly a sort of higher magic and a sort of lower magic Mm -hmm. the higher magic or what they would usually call theurgy is what are you trying to do you're trying to purify refine your own psyche slash soul to get it closer to god and you Mm -hmm. do that through living sort of an ascetic very serious lifestyle and not over engaging in in earthly pleasures and not connecting yourself to earth. And and this is part of where the eating meat comes in because I I think I think the idea is that there's sort of a spiritual weight mm-hmm. to life. And if you're consuming that spiritual force, it's kind of tethering your soul to this realm more. Right. So that's part of the reason why you like literally don't want to be a dense body is mm-hmm. because you want you you want to have a light body that can ascend easily and that's the f like that's the the noble effort that's what Plotinus Mm -hmm. is trying to get you to do that's what all these platonists are trying to get you to do is is orient your vision kind of toward the oneness toward the non-dual toward the higher realms Mm -hmm. and if you're doing that lower kind of magic where you're trying to mess around with other people. You're trying to gain wealth for yourself. You're Mm -hmm. trying to cast a love spell on someone you're doing the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing and look at what a lot of the like new age manifestation shit is, man. It's, it's, it's just a remixed form of low magic. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I just, I don't like mixing those worlds. It feels Mm -hmm. like if I have a diamond, my diamond is like, don't do that shit. Like it's, there's something very deep in me. That's like, I'm not even saying it's not real. Let's cause they, they clearly believed it was real. Right. I just, but what had, i oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. yeah, go yeah. Ahead. But, but what I, but what I really feel a strong tingle toward is that if you're going to do this kind of stuff and you're going to get into this kind of stuff, don't go off on that path. Cause you're going to start finding like, Oh, there's whole grimoires out there where I can supposedly have, spirits or whatever like do these things for me and like give me these things and Mm -hmm. let's say that works right do you do you really want to do that like do you think that's a good idea you know Mm -hmm. um probably not and i I don't
0: i don't think so i I don't think so (laughs) i think so i just had a conversation on the episode before this one with my friend my friend droove which he talked about how manifestation is essentially adding more karma yeah, yeah. We're here to clear our karma. We're here to burn our karma so that we could hopefully ascend to a more spiritual life the next time around. If we're going to sit here and
1: manifest, we're just adding more to the credit card. Yeah, like, what are you saying? You're talking about making material appear, right? Like, making mm-hmm. some material thing that you want appear. Mm-hmm. That's literally making more physical things appear. Right. And that's not the kind of... Yeah, I mean, every... He, here's a great example of... A through line that transcends any kind of thinking and and uh spiritual path or religion is wealthy people people who have too much people who are too attached to this world mm-hmm. they don't go to the good place they don't go to the better place they don't they don't become a bodhisattva. They don't go to heaven. They mm-hmm, don't mm-hmm. ascend to like some noetic realm. They don't get a better incarnation the next time around. You know, they they're they're trapping themselves into a more solidified, like, earthly form by right. by doing that. And uh, you and I mean, look, you and I both like shit. You you like cool cars. I like mm-hmm. cool cars. I like good food. I like all these things. Right. But there comes a point where you got to sort of understand that's sort of a low like that's a low game and that's not who I am right it's like a, it's it's fun it's whatever but it's ultimately kind of not what I want to be oriented toward ultimately right. you know yeah
0: yeah that just made me think about how Jim Carrey kind of said this thing that I honestly resonate with now at this point which you know Jim Carrey's our modern guru no I'm just kidding but uh but he said I hope you get wealth I hope you get right. cars I hope you get all of these fancy things so that you can see that that's not it. And that's not going to make right. you happy. Right. I resonate a thousand percent with this. It took me getting my dream cars to realize, Oh wow. So I don't really need to get those, you know, like I'm glad I got yeah, them man. so that you I should, know now that they're not the answer. You should,
1: give them, you should answer. probably give them to me. You should probably give them
0: to me. <laughs> now that you know. Um, thousand percent. But you know, it did bring a level of happiness to my inner child. Like I had been wanting these cars since I was a teenager and blah, blah, blah. And, I got them, but, you know, now I'm just more interested in all this stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even really think about the cars. I don't take them out to the car shows like I thought I would and put a, you know, like, I don't know, be driving around, like, trying to network with other car people and blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't do that. I'm not interested in that, you know? I had to get the thing to realize that it wasn't really my dharma, you know? So, I I
1: relate to that, but that's interesting. One of the things I think might make more make this make more sense is Mm -hmm. laying out the sort of general outline of the metaphysical picture that these thinkers believed in because i think that will start to make some of these ideas of you know you're bringing your psyche slash soul up to these higher realms like what what exactly we're we're talking about yeah um there's definitely important differences in how some of these platonists think about the sort of metaphysical higher realities stuff Mm, yeah but there's a general picture and Mm -hmm. what's interesting is that this general picture also extends to things like hermeticism and um gnosticism to some extent which a lot of people are you know for whatever reason those those terms sort of get more shine than platonism but Mm -hmm. they have a ton to O to that sort of platonizing, uh, emanatory metaphysics. And what I mean by that is that the picture that is essentially painted, especially in um, Platonic texts like the Timaeus, is that reality started with what they call the One. Mm-hmm. So some kind of transcendent oneness that is beyond, basically beyond all concept, very much like the Tao. Yeah. very much um well i won't even go that far because i'll, I'll leave, i don't want to overcomplicate it but mm-hmm. l- leave it at that like so, something that's beyond concept like some sort of transcendent starting point concept but it actually transcends concepts you can't like really say anything directly about it because it's before right. concepts even exist it's almost like infinite potential sort of thing that you just can't conceive of and then from there it splits into a dyad so like a two and then it splits into a three Mm. and the three becomes very very important throughout platonism like and also if you go back and look at um some of the core ideas underpinning uh uh, pythagoreanism and stuff like that like threes are threes are everywhere Mm. the general picture though is Everything starts from the one, and then it emanates outward into more and more differentiating forms. Mm-hmm. And this is th- when we were talking about these things like these noetic realities. Yeah, that's like these these gradients of reality that are closer and closer to that transcendent oneness. Right. <clears throat> And within these high realms, this is where you get things like what we briefly touched on before, like the Platonic realm of forms. Mm-hmm. So this is where everything exists in sort of a perfect way in, to use way oversimplified problematic terms, in like the sort of mind of God. Like yeah. this is where geometry comes from, this is where mathematics comes from, this is why the like reality makes sense. And our minds can come into contact with with these higher realities to an extent. Mm-hmm. And math and geometry, in some strange way, sort of proves it. It mm-hmm. sort of proves that there are these universal laws that exist that transcend language, they transcend concept. They just work. Like, yeah. math just works. Your 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 electronics just work because you used those mathematical rules and laws to make things work, right? Yeah. So... That's why that is. Um, and then once you get, you kind of get down these successive layers of reality and you get closer to our reality, you actually hit a sphere of reality or a part of reality that is, Plato just calls soul, basically. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is that, strictly speaking, according to Plato, soul doesn't exist except for on this plane that we're on, which is funny because most people would think like, oh, soul, that must be like the higher thing, right? Sure. But here's why that's not the case. So if you look at what the word soul really means and what it entails back then, Mm -hmm. it entails things like, so one of the words they use is anima. And Mm -hmm. what does that sound like? Animation, right? Yeah. And that's what it means is like movement. So... Uh you get into this realm of movement, of phenomena, of Mm -hmm. time, and space, and discrete things. And we live in that realm. We live in the realm of stuff moving around, of things being dynamic, of coming into being, Mm -hmm. and dying, and cycling over and over and over again. And you have soul, yourself, right? As -hmm. does everything in this realm. But human soul is special, Because human soul has a quality called Logos, Mm -hmm. which is related to the word logic, related to um, that rational faculty that I was talking about before, like our ability to come into contact with things like math and like higher transcendent truths. And the idea is that if you can sharpen that part of your soul or your psyche, this Logos, then you can begin to use it to move up these successive degrees of reality closer back to the one. And if you establish yourself in these higher realities, you you kind of wake up to these higher worlds. And and this kind of gets into the um, mystery initiations too, because um, one of the core ideas with these mystery initiations is that you're going through kind of a death rehearsal. And by going through the death rehearsal, you're sort of waking up to your, to an immortal aspect of yourself or of your soul or something. Mm. And it's the same kind of idea in platonic thought. Like, they're trying to get to the exact same point, is that if you associate too heavily with this world, mm-hmm. you're destined to just be this, like, mindless automaton who's reincarnating all the time, not waking up to the higher reality. Mm-hmm. But if you're able to, like I said, sharpen that logos and use it to understand reality, use it to understand these higher realms, then you actually kind of get born into these other realms or you remember that you're part of these other realms. And it kind of fundamentally changes your relationship with reality so that you're not just strictly a lower being stuck here anymore. You're actually part of this like this higher uh, truth, this higher reality. Yeah. And it starts to become hard to talk about because different Platonists kind of disagree on what you're capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no there's no final answer, but that's like the general what we're doing here sort of picture. Uh, right. right. And, and I think that that holds, man. That that definitely holds with my own spiritual interests. And I'm I'm really not interested in anything else spiritually other than trying to come into contact with whatever that is, you know, or understand whatever that is. Um, Well, it seems like, and I have, yeah, it seems like, you know,
0: Platonism is trying to point you towards, hey, the most valuable thing you could do to actually understand life and why you're here is come in contact with the one. Because when you come in contact with the one, you know, what this all is. And prior to that, you kind of feel separate from everything. You feel like you're a separate being from all the, the the other fellow humans, animals, and nature. When you come in contact with the one, you realize, "Oh, I'm a equal part of this all." Um in uh, uh Sikhism or Sikhi, which my last podcast was exploring, we learn that the primary tenet in what they believe is ik onkar, which means the creator and the creation are one we are the creation but we're also the creator um, and for us to come to understand that is almost the most valuable thing you could know as a human because now it's not you versus the world now you mm-hmm. have a purpose and understanding that the other is you and you are the other. And when you kind of have that relationship with other fellow humans, I feel like it just makes your life a lot easier, a lot less stressful. Like you understand people's ignorance and you don't get upset about it as much, you know, versus like, Oh, he's an asshole. Cause he cut me off. Yeah. You know, if you're driving the mm-hmm. car, it's just like, I kind of understand like, Oh, well he's in his own world and he probably wasn't thinking about me at all when he did that. And you just kind of like, let, you get a lot more slack for understanding why things are the way they are and things don't upset you as much. I'm not saying you'll never get upset, but you don't get upset nearly as much when you understand that we're all one. The other person is you and you're the other person. We have a lot more in common than we do differing from each other. So totally. he's, he's kind of like trying to point you in the direction of, yo, you really need to know what the one is, so that you can even start understanding what life is and and why we're here and how to move about as a as an individual.
1: What what does yeah. that
0: bring up for you?
1: Totally. I, I think you're definitely on the right track. And that's like the core you're that's like a a core part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Socrates slash Plato were very reluctant to speak directly about the one because they thought like Again, as soon as you start trying to say that you understand what it is or isn't, you're you're sort of doing violence to whatever it actually is. But I think that that's clearly part of it. And that's, that's really close to what Plotinus said, because Plotinus was one of the Platonists who believed that you could get your individual noose, your individual mind, all the way back up to the one. Like, yeah. not, not everyone could, but that was like the highest attainable experience for a practitioner of whatever the fuck he was actually doing. Right. Um, there's like a, a a phrase like henosis mm. which means I think like it's like a direct gnostic experience of that uh divine unity or whatever. Yeah. And so so he yeah, he definitely thought that and different platonists thought it was possible to reach this noetic realm or this no whatever. But the core idea I think holds is that you realize that you're part of this continuum of being and that everything emanates from this one source and that you're a piece of this whole divine web of interconnectivity that's a hundred percent right and there's this there's this famous sanskrit yoga yogic saying too from the yoga sutras that i don't remember now but it's it, what you were saying really reminded me of it because there's i know one of the words is vritti mm-hmm. or vritti I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce it but it essentially means like um like a ripple or a uh an alteration of consciousness mm-hmm. and essentially it um it's like at the very beginning of the yoga sutras of patanjali mm-hmm. and it's basically like if you were going to try to boil yoga down to one thing it's yoga is the containment of ripples basically mm-hmm. it's like controlling your mind and your soul so that it doesn't you know like you're saying you know you so you don't so you understand other people you you don't get angry you don't have giant you know out of control emotional reactions to things right. and that's like the core yogic teaching is that you're you've disciplined your mind and your soul and everything to a point where it doesn't it doesn't ripple like it doesn't it just doesn't it doesn't freak out when things happen and right. you could you could take that as a very practical teaching right Mm-hmm. but then if you really reflect on like what's what's underneath that it's everything we're talking about it's yeah. that it's not about the small me mm-hmm. the small me is just like a little tiny puppet of whatever the higher realities are mm-hmm. and i can fool myself into thinking i'm really that puppet but really i'm not it's an unbelievably temporary manifestation of the divine orchestra of being that's yeah that's what it is and the deeper into that reality you can get the closer you approach to i think a spiritual birth or a type of quote unquote immortality or whatever because it's not just the problem is is i think a lot of people can get behind the idea of what we're talking about mm-hmm. but how deep can you like live that as if it's reality right yeah, like how right. deep can you really feel that in your body mm-hmm. that i'm something that transcends my temporary Michaelness and madness and all of these things. And that those are really just like pixels on the screen of reality emerging for a short amount of time. And that there's like, you're really the light underneath the image, right? Right. And if if you can really get into that, I think you're getting to a core teaching of all of this stuff, Platonism, you know, the yogic teachings. I'm sure that also um, merges in with what, Sikhism is talking about since they come from the same culture, Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, man, it's that's definitely the core of everything, and and it also is consistent with with that high quote unquote higher magic we were talking about that theurgy we were talking about of aiming your your consciousness, your soul, your mind toward that rather than how do I get this stuff for myself? How do I how do I win this? How do I get that? How do I manifest this? That's like strip the language off of that way of being like that, that grasping way is not a good feeling. Yeah. Like that. the feeling underneath that is not good. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's gross. You know, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a cancerous vibration. <laughs> well, yeah.
0: Like Buddhists teach desires the root of suffering. It's that, yeah. If mm-hmm. we desire to be better than everyone, if we, we desire for this thing so that someone else can't have it, I mean, we're just causing more suffering, you know, not only to ourselves, but to others. And, uh, you know, one thing that came up about how, how do we embody it daily, it definitely takes a daily spiritual practice. I think you can't just do a spiritual practice and then float on it for a week or a month, you know, have a ceremony, do ayahuasca, and now it's like, you know, forever now that we're all one you don't you know like your your mind your monkey mind comes back slowly but surely but if you want to create you know more bandwidth for yourself to stay within that if you were to meditate each day or practice a certain diet um certainly that helps and but i do think you need to remind yourself like every freaking day yeah Otherwise, you're going to lose, you, the emotions are going to sweep you and you're going to fall into I'm separate rather than I'm part of the one. And as well, that, that all brought up something we talked about before we started recording, which blew my mind about Sikhism, which is because I'm, I'm a fan of these idols. You know, I have like a Hanuman here. I've got a Ganesha. I've got a Shiva. And for some reason, you know, I always, and I think it's the common, you know, way to look at it is This represents a God and perhaps even a God is inside this idol. Well, what Sikhism was saying that blew my mind was you don't need idols because what that then does is you think that the God is within the idol and it's not within everything. So in Sikhism, they say we don't do idol worship because again, that implies that God is within the idol and not within everything. Um, that blew my mind, and I was like, holy shit, I really resonate with that, because I did feel like the spirit of Hanuman was in my Hanuman statue, and I don't know that it isn't necessarily, but I, I, I do like the idea that um, we, we can reach a state of consciousness that we see God in all. God is in the bugs. God is in the plants, God's in the blade of grass, God's in this table in front of me, this microphone, you know, every single other human. Um, that to me is kind of what Platonism maybe is is trying to teach as well, is like it is all one. God is, you know, God is a loaded word, but it is all part of this. Um, yeah, The fabric of reality is God.
1: Yeah, right. That 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 noose that mind interpenetrates everything, and you, and right. you may be various gradients away from the like the purest form of it, mm-hmm. but it is it interpenetrates everything. The logos interpenetrates everything. Like the divine mind and logic is is why the world exists and why the world works. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, this is again, this is this is interesting because it gets into competing ways of thinking about it that what you just lined outline is again that's like the plotinus way of thinking like mm-hmm. you don't need all these crazy rituals you don't need all this religious paraphernalia like you really just need to like go deep inside and like do this deep inner work and you'll find the truth if you journey your soul upward and shed you know all the layers right there's a really cool practice that i don't think we have any proof whatsoever to, like, say that that's what they were doing. But mm-hmm. there is a practice that's more commonly associated with hermeticism that I want to, like, tell you about at some point, because I've i done the meditation a couple times, and I really, really love it. But um, mm-hmm. but before I go there, there is an opposite point of view, which, again, comes from the more sort of ritualistic, magical Platonists, like the Iamblichus guy, mm-hmm. who really, truly believe that you can get gods down into statues or you can get like so there yeah so let's look at something like a crazy megalithic temple right like a pyramid like a um you know the a- any of these just crazy temples that you look at now and you're just like what the fuck is that why would they go through such painstaking efforts to create that thing yeah and once you come into contact with this notion of sympathy basically sympathia mm mm-hmm. This seemed to be an idea that was pervasive throughout ancient history that you could somehow create a sympathy between things down on earth and up in the heavens or godly realm. Mm-hmm. And if you could do this successfully, do the right rituals and have all the right pieces, you really could draw down some kind of godly power into these temples, into these statues. Wow. But you had to know, you know, all of these, like, arcane rites and uh, special alchemical, you know, recipes and do these, like I was telling you about before, this opening of the mouth ceremony and all of these mm-hmm. things that uh, you had to do to, like, really bind the god into the statue. Right. So, I don't think Hanuman is in your statue. But <laughs> some people throughout the ancient world really did believe that you could do the right rituals to insole a statue. Right. And this is another one of these things that scholars look at and they're like, this can't be real. Mm-hmm. But if Iamblichus, this this famous Platonist, talked about it a lot, it's talked about in Hermetic texts, it's definitely something they were doing in Egypt. Like, this is for sure a practice. Like, there, there's, there's records of different people, like this Zosimus guy I was talking about before, talking about this stuff. Right, so is that it's the really,
0: Chaldean oracle thing?
1: The the Chaldean oracles is something different. Yeah, that's a whole different rabbit hole. Um, okay, but I'm not even going to get into that because I okay. I couldn't do a, a super great job of explaining it. But the Chaldean oracles were, it's almost like this channeled text that comes from uh, the ancient Sumerian people that a lot of these Greeks believed was like was genuine. Like mm-hmm. they believe this is real divine transmission uh and it's very like there, it only exists in fragments but the fragments that exist are just crazy and super psychedelic and yeah. and wild
0: i'll have to research that in um, the next podcast
1: yeah yeah do it do it and i should too because it's yeah. just just reading some of the examples it's like it, it's like really brain melting because they're all they're all written in uh, like a lot of ancient stuff is all written in like a, a poetic rhythmic form yeah. Like it's, that. it's not written just like you and I talking, it's written in a sort of, I don't remember which type of uh, rhythm it is, but yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's all like poetic, like these poetic psychedelic mm-hmm. transmissions basically. I love that. Um, well, this does actually,
0: while we're on the topic of all these gods and stuff, this, this does let me, uh, lead me into the kind of last story from Plotinus. Um, that I had to discuss. And so what I have written here to jog my memory is, um, Porphyry's biography tells us of one time when Plotinus said something that was shocking to all of the people around him. Um, and he invited them, he, uh, Porphyry invited, sorry, Amilius was fond of sacrifice and used to busy himself with the rites of the new moon. And he once tried to get Plotinus to participate with him, but Plotinus said, the gods must come to me and not I to them. What does that mean yeah. to you?
1: <laughs> I, I think it's hard to say exactly what it means, but my where my mind goes is, is again when we When we look at what he was saying in the Enneads primarily and how obsessed he was with single-mindedly doing this kind of inward-facing work where you're trying to elevate your soul upward, he doesn't want to be distracted by things like images. He doesn't want to be distracted by things like maybe what we would think of today as archetypes because I think there's a lot of rich overlap between the idea of Jungian archetypes and what the ancients would have thought of as gods, these sort of like Mm -hmm. personified powers, right? Like these nature archetypes or, um, you know, the archetype of something like war or beauty or whatever. Mm -hmm. He wasn't denying that those things exist, but I think he would view those things as these are actually distractions taking me away from the one. Mm. I want to go toward the non-dual one. The non-dual one does not have an image, mm-hmm. like it's a state of being. Right? It's a state of uni- of divine unification of light of beyond concept. Why? Why would I want to do a ritual to Hecate, or why would I want to do a ritual to Hermes? Like mm-hmm. the that's not going to get me to where where I need to go. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's probably what he meant is like yeah, I could focus in on these things or try to em- evoke these archetypes or whatever, but that's not going to help me do what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, it makes, th- th- me, it yeah. makes
0: me think that maybe what he was saying was, I'm more interested in raising my consciousness so high that the gods see me. Right, right. Yeah, that's y- it. You know, instead of begging them to come visit you.
1: But again, it's not You become the point right. of light. You know? Yeah, what it what is my by my he doesn't mean Plotinus by my he means I'm not Plotinus mm-hmm. like I'm I'm trying to not be Plotinus basically I'm yeah. trying to be the one I'm trying yeah. to go back to my where I came from where where my and, and again he believed his soul was truly already up there he believed all of our souls were truly already in this noetic unified realm and that we could get back there even in this life basically mm-hmm. and that when you die you could just go. Yeah, I'm already here. You know, I've right. basically been here the whole time. Yeah. Um, sadly, right. I think what we know about his death is pretty bad. Um, I think I, I think I heard that you know he he was like sort of sick for a long time, and that you know a yeah. lot of his followers left him while he was sick and stuff like that, which which sucks. But yeah. um, but to that point, though, that practice that I was telling you about that I think you'd be interested to hear mm-hmm. is there is a pretty there is a pretty widespread idea. Um, of there being, you know, like the seven ancient planets being essentially these archetypal gods, right? So mm-hmm. you have you have Mercury, you have Venus, you have Saturn, you have the Moon, the Sun, uh, Jupiter, Saturn. I may have missed one in there. Uh, Mars slash Aries. And there, there's this practice that you do that um, comes out of, it might be the Poimandre's, or it might be the Asclepius. It's one of those like famous hermetic texts. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea of, and man, there's, there's so much context to lay out here. So we didn't talk about this idea of when you incarnate and, you know, you get the diamond and everything. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that happens is you, you get planetary influence stuck on you in the ancient world. And this is today Mm -hmm. what we would call astrology, right? Like you you get these planetary influences like stuck onto your soul or your soul vehicle or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's this practice that comes out of Hermeticism, but may actually, it it seems very Platonizing to me in this way, where you essentially try to shed all of that influence. So Mm -hmm. whether you're thinking about it as planets or just archetypes or whatever, you, you go through this meditative process of sort of getting into a, you know, just a calm state first, first of all, and then zooming out your perspective as much as you can. And on the way, you go through each one of these seven influences. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Mercury slash Hermes, mm-hmm. this is equated with cleverness. And with uh, scheming and machinations and uh, that kind of thing. Mm. So one of the first stations would be trying to take those things off of you. Like mm. to Mercury, I leave my cunning, I leave my cleverness, I leave my machinations. Mm. Then you keep doing that. Like to, to Aries slash Mars, I leave my... And, and there's a whole like script for this you can find. Like sure. I leave my anger, I leave my... Right. uh desire to dominate whatever right and you go up each of these spheres and you try to really take those things off mm. until you get to what they call like the eighth sphere or the sphere of the fixed stars and this is sort of like now your now your mind your noose, your soul is you've taken all those things off and you're as you're like you're getting closer to god basically and you go up to this eighth sphere where you're free of all those influences and you really try to like establish yourself there and you can sort of start to get close to the one or the transcendent thing by going up these um up the seven spheres and trying to take all these things off and really leave those things um and then of course you have to come back down right you have to like come back down and put all those things back on because you're mm-hmm. still existing in this realm but there's something beautiful about that practice man of of trying to even if it's just going through the motions and it's clunky of really trying to be like i'm not this i'm not my desires i'm not all these different things that i think about on a daily basis i don't want anything i just want to reunify it's yeah. a it's a powerful um, damn mental ritual to go through.
0: Yeah, yeah. After the pot, if you have a link to like, you know, a guided meditation or a text, I would love to check that out.
1: Yeah, I I first came across it in a book. Um, I'll see if I can find one online though. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's yeah. a. If you took that's a, a p-
0: picture of the book too, that that would work. But um, yeah, yeah. That that brought to memory this one kriya practice I have done. Um, it's from the lineage of Kriya Yoga, which I'm very interested in. Um, and it was a meditation that, you know, more or less you close your eyes and it was like, imagine the million miles above your head. Imagine the million miles below your seat. Um, Imagine the million miles to your left. Yeah. And imagine the million miles to your Right. And once you do that, you start to get into some fucking cosmic feeling consciousness where you realize, holy shit. Like, I don't even know how to say what you realize, honestly. But it was like this profound sense of where I am in the universe and that I'm a part of it all. Yeah. I don't know. It's <laughs> so that, yeah, that's a cool a, meditation to try.
1: <laughs> there's a, uh, I'm trying to remember in, uh, in psychology, when they talk about the science of wonder and awe, it's called perceived vastness. That's what they call it. Mm. That That's a way to tap into this, I- into measurable, psychologically measurable states of wonder and awe is to feel like you're in this just vast, vast universe. This is why people feel, you know, a strange sense of peace when they look at the ocean or a giant mountain range or whatever. It's like what they call perceived vastness. Mm -hmm. But the difference, I think, is that in Hermeticism or in Platonism or in yoga, one of the the big missing piece is they're trying to be like, look at what your consciousness is. Mm -hmm. Your consciousness is cosmic. The very right. fact that you're able to conceive of this cosmos shows that your mind extends not just into your body but into the cosmos yeah and you know like in in science that that doesn't fly right because there's like what do you mean like there's no you can't prove that that's just a nice idea but to the hermeticists to the platonists to the yogis that's very real like your yeah. your consciousness is not just your consciousness your noose is not just your noose. Like mm-hmm. it, it's p- connected to the higher realm or in Jungian terms, your your conscious mind is not all there is. It's co- it's connected to the collective unconscious. Yeah. Um, and that's a hard hurdle for even like conceptually, I love the idea and, and I'm like, yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. But I have yeah. doubt, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's just like the human mind's, the human brain's yeah. ability to to conceive of things, but I certainly like it. Yeah. I certainly like it.
0: Yeah. I say this kind of lightheartedly and not totally seriously, but if you want to dispel your doubt, if you do the right amount of ketamine in the oh, right yeah. set and setting.
1: Or not might, even just it, ketamine, yeah. It might be dispelled. <laughs> right. Well, I, I told you about my, like, the, the hellish experiences I had in ayahuasca and then my third night when I really broke through mm-hmm. into the, like, cosmic... Uh, sort of wise man archetype experience, dude, I I left the building just verbally saying and thinking, never doubt this, never doubt this, never doubt this. And I wrote down in my journal, never doubt that this happened because I knew that I would eventually doubt it. I yeah. knew that when I like came back down and like everything yeah. was going back to normal, I'd be like, man, I, I don't know. I was, I was <laughs> on ayahuasca. I was on ayahuasca. But yeah. while it was happening in, in the thereafter, I was like, this fucking happened, no doubt. Yeah. So I do hang on to that. I do yeah. hang on to that. And I do think about that moment perhaps being one of those almost kind of cosmic births kind of moments right? where it's like you were there, man. And you were there- in a very convincing way that mm-hmm. you know you might doubt it now, but at a point in time you knew for for beyond a doubt that yeah. it was just as real, if not more real than than all of this is. It was just very temporary. So a thousand percent. Yeah. I'm hoping. I'm hoping that was the. I'm hoping that was a little noetic birth moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Thousand percent. So I think one way to stay in touch with those epiphanies while we're so far removed from them, you know, ayahuasca has been years and years ago now. Um, yeah, it was is, 2019. Yeah, it's is to program your dreams. It doesn't work every time, but certainly I've had success with it where if you can kind of find your consciousness right before the point you fall asleep and you're, you're able to kind of say like, I'm asking for a dream of XYZ, For example, I'm asking for a dream of cosmic consciousness. It might not happen the first time you ask for it or the third, but by the 10th time you're going to bed and you're genuinely asking for this. A lot of times I get a dream that I wake up from and I'm like, that was what I was asking for. You know what I mean? Have you ever played with this kind of like program your dreams, you know?
1: Yeah, I've had not a lot of success with it. I've... Yeah, it's really missed, for sure. I've really wanted to. I mean, I I went through a whole period of I'm going to do dream work. I'm going to write it all down. I'm going to, um, ask the dream intelligence for things. I'm going to try to have lucid dreams. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I wouldn't say I had zero success with it, but it was very hit or miss. And it wasn't, Mm -hmm. it was never like exactly what I wanted, but Mm -hmm. I did have some, I did have some really wild, like psychedelic almost like ufo um consciousness type dreams but they were very abstract Mm -hmm. they weren't like they weren't like oh i'm having like a really solid like everyone knows what it's like to have the this maybe not everyone does because i've brought this up to some people um and they seem to not know what I was talking about. I think I was talking to my my mom. <laughs> she was just like, like I, I brought up like the hypnagogic state to her, and I'm like, you know how if you get shaken out of sleep, mm-hmm. and you you have the almost like fractally, like visuals on the periphery of your vision, like you can still see what's almost exact. Like to me, it's indistinguishable from like a heavy tryptamine experience um, like you're, you're seeing that and it like quickly sort of dispels but you can see like the crackles of it yeah and um i didn't explain it to her quite in that way but i really yeah. tried to explain it and she's just like i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> like, oh, okay um i love that but um but no like i remember having you know i was trying to lucid dream and i had this experience mm-hmm. of what seemed to be like a um a cohesive vessel of that kind of geometry coming to me. Like wow. it, it almost felt, that's why I said UFO because it seemed like it didn't just seem like I was in a field of it. It seemed mm-hmm. like it was like an object made of that, like coming to me. Damn. And that was one of those where I woke up, I immediately wrote it down. I was just like uh, fractal UFO. I don't know what that was, but it was wild. Right. Um, but I've also, I've also had those not many, but a couple of lucid dreams that were like, realistic formed worlds that i woke up in yeah like i was at a party and then i realized it was one of those things where we were walking yeah and it seemed like i was going into all these successive rooms that looked the same i was like wait a minute this does not make sense this is this has to be a dream and i remember waking up in that dream for a couple of minutes but yeah yeah I'm, i'm certainly not a good lucid dreamer or feel like i'm really proficient in that in that art yeah
0: i'm not exactly talking about lucid dreaming but lucid dreaming is interesting i've certainly caught myself in a couple dreams and was able to play with it um but really for example like one i have done and had success with uh was you know right before i fell asleep i told my subconscious or whatever i said like give me a dream of enlightenment and I would have a dream about an enlightened state of consciousness. And I wake up and be like, holy shit, it worked. You know what I mean? Um, of course, it was just a dream. And, you know, you, you once the dream residue and all that, you kind of forget. But um, that's super interesting. But while we're on the topic of dreams, I did have one other topic I wanted to bring up before we run out of time, which was the... Unus mundus. Mm-hmm. Um, does that have anything to do with dreams in your understanding?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So in most people are aware of that term unus mundus, which means one world through Jung. Mm-hmm. So unus mundus is just a way to explain the sort of non-duality of reality, mm-hmm. especially as things like synchronicity, as it pertains to things like synchronicities and dreams, mm-hmm. in that You can see instances of the psychical or the mental manifesting in physical reality. And that's what a synchronicity would be to Jung. Mm -hmm. So, you know, famous example or really easy example of you haven't talked to a friend in two years and you think, oh, I wonder what, I wonder what John is up to. And then suddenly John calls you, right? Right what is that and a lot of people have had that experience or yeah. there's a there's varying degrees of it i mean you know my crazy rose synchronicity story yep. there's there's all there's like the really complex multi-layered synchronicities and those are the very best examples of something has to be going on here right like yeah. not only is it john called me but i saw a billboard that said john and <laughs> someone said john on the radio and john like that kind of shit where it's just totally. all these different things Layering on top of each other, and Jung would explain that as the Unus Mundus—that mm-hmm. you could see what we perceive to be this this world, like the physical world where we can interact with things, versus the mental psychical world. They mm-hmm. just don't like I can't I can't think of a pencil and make a pencil appear. Right, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Yet there is permeability. Yet there is things flowing between the two, and synchronicities are an example of that. So he he would call the true state, the true underlying unity of reality, the unus mundus. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this fits exactly in with what we're we're talking about with Platonism, right? Right. Is that there is this transcendent realm above the physical and above our minds, yet it's connected. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we see signs of that interconnectivity in ways that we can't explain, but we see it. And it's very hard to just explain away as just oh that was random chance you know that that's really your option is do you want to explain all of that away as random chance and don't get me wrong i think people go way overboard with synchronicities and Mm -hmm. with things but i also think there are times where it's just come on this cannot be random (laughs) this cannot be random
0: thousand percent yeah i mean i guess it comes either just with your awareness or maybe the depth of your practice. But I mean, for someone like myself and I definitely know a number of my listeners that have commented on some of my posts saying like, I experience this every day type shit is like, right. yeah, I'm not even surprised anymore. I'm having mm-hmm. synchronicities every fucking day, every day. And, and sometimes they're very small. Sometimes they're big, but I often will have a thought just like we said about, I haven't thought about John. And then within five minutes, boom, there it is. It's manifested in my reality. It happens all the fucking time. I don't know if I'm just like looking for shit or if yeah. uh, my intuition is like dialed to the point that I'm like feeling
1: something happening before mm-hmm. it happens. And and we can't, I don't think we can be sure. But I yeah. think I think somewhere deep down, you know how much you're looking for it versus how much it's really just showing up and even if let's just give it a let's say 25 percent of the time you're looking for it or even 50 Mm -hmm. or whatever percent it actually doesn't matter what percentage of the time it's just you making it up as long as it's also one percent of the time real like Mm -hmm. even if it's one percent of the time real that still means it's real you know Mm -hmm. and that's that's where i end up settling is like really on any of these weird metaphysical things it's only one of these stories has to be real for it to be real. Only one synchronicity has to be real for it to be real. Um, and that alone is just, it, it makes the world an incredibly wonderful, mysterious place. And that's always where I try to land because I, I do think that we, we can move in the right direction, but I don't think we can ever get there you know, yeah. to, to the big to the big, whatever there is, especially as long as we're in human form. Right. Uh, so I try not to overreach. I try not to say, you know, so many people wanna know what their synchronicities mean. So many people wanna know, what does it mean if this happens to me or I have a dream about this or I have whatever. I'm like, I'm happy to speculate, but I also think you can overreach and you can walk yourself into some dangerous directions with too much of that. So mm-hmm. I try to yeah. err on the side of like open-ended wonder on these things. But, uh, yeah, Yeah. but I think that that's a good place
0: to be. Totally. Yeah. And my last note that, that you had just made me remember with what you said is it's very tempting to like go to Google and ask what your dream meant. But I think the better practice is to come to your own conclusion. Right. It's like, if, what did the synchronicity mean? I can go to Google. Why did I see this, or what does this symbol mean, or what does this number represent, or what does the spirit animal mean? I saw a fox today. What does it mean? I mean, I think, or even the dream. I I had a dream that I was being chased by an alligator, whatever. Like, you could go to Google and ask, what does 1111 mean? What does the fox symbolize? What does being chased in a dream by a predatory animal mean? You can get some answers for sure. You can get some answers. Maybe they'll help you. Maybe they won't. I don't know. Um, but I don't know. I've heard time and time again that the the, the deepest practice is to come to your own conclusion yeah. in your own mind. What does the fox mean? In your own mind, what does eleven eleven represent? In your own mind, what does being chased by a predatory mean? What it, what relevance does it have to you in your life and your circumstances recently? Um, what does I that bring up for you?
1: It- I don't like the word conclusion because I feel like that's too final for a process that's ongoing. Mm, I like that. You know, like l- let's uh, this is one of the problems we're in in a modern sense is in that we're we're not agreeing on the source of things. We're not being careful with what what lenses we're using to try to make sense of phenomena that don't really fit in with everyday occurrences. So for me, my favorite my favorite one is probably the Jungian one, in that let's use a dream example or a synchronicity example. Mm-hmm. For Jung, this is inf- this is symbolic information coming from the unconscious, and maybe you know using the language of the collective unconscious or archetypes or whatever. So the question then becomes, not what dream did I have. The question becomes, what symbolic information came into my awareness from deeper realms of psyche or deeper realms of noetic or whatever? Yeah. And if you change it to, there's like this ongoing informational exchange, right? Where I, or or at least I'm receiving or whatever, Mm -hmm. then it's like, okay, this, this was said in the conversation. What, what do I do with that? I think, I think that's a, a, a little bit more of an open ended way. And it's not, I I don't, I don't like thinking of it as what is my conclusion about 1111, because then you just project whatever you want onto 1111, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't even really like that example in general because eleven eleven 11 just happens all the time. You can just, <laughs> you know, you can subconsciously program yourself to look at the clock more often and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're really tuned into the realm of capturing symbols, and don't even make a snap judgment. Just be curious. Just had a dream about a woman with brown hair.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Just write that down. Five nights later, Oh, had a dream about the woman with brown hair again. And this time she had a snake around her wrist. Mm-hmm. You know, like things like that. That's I think that's how you more unbiasedly and intelligently start to decode and form a relationship with this world because then you you allow patterns to emerge over time. And then it's like, you know, if if she shows up four or five times and you slowly get four or five different aspects of the image, now you're starting to get more, uh, more pixels, more, a, a more sharp view of whatever the symbol is, rather yeah. than jumping to a conclusion of like, this is what I conclude this is about. Because that's, that's, everyone wants to project whether they know it or not, you know, they mm-hmm. want to, they want it to be about this or not about this or whatever it is. So I think on ongoing relationship, think of a dream more like a, like an image, a transmission that you caught from somewhere else. It was like, oh, you know, rather than it's your dream, it's your image. Um, I like that more Jungian kind of Hillman, Mm -hmm. James Hillman way of, of interacting with it rather than. Totally agree with you. I don't like, I don't like the idea of like, this always means this. Right. I don't think that's how it works. And even if, yeah, of course there's a fox, for instance, there's a lot of archetypal lineage Mm -hmm. with the image of a fox. And this doesn't nullify that, but it's going to change how it's coming to you versus how it's coming to someone else. And Mm -hmm. the more intelligence and patience you can have with that, I think the more like rich, honest, nuanced viewpoint you're going to have of that whatever whatever it is yeah so
0: it's like the archetype of the fox is coming to you become curious about the archetype of the fox right Mm -hmm. rather than think like the fox is trying to give me a warning or something it's like there's a there's a definitive conclusion to come to rather if you just kind of become curious about the archetype of the fox Maybe you yeah, hold it in your mind. I don't know.
1: Right. And it's tricky, man. It's very tricky because I think there there is no right or wrong. I think you I think you can be more or less skilled in decoding all this stuff because there is precognitive dreams, right? Or like most people would say so. Jung would definitely say there were. Like there's all these different instances of him talking about precognitive dreams and like, you know. Right. There there's one about like uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but One was essentially a dream that predicted a guy dying in a mountain climbing accident, and then he did die in the mountain climbing accident. Another one was like dying in a fire, and someone did die in a fire. So, yeah, you know, it's I I just, I hesitate to ever say that it's one thing or not one thing. I think it comes down to, to your point, the individual, but also skilled, honest, unbiased relationship with that stuff and, and young, we can like, yeah, this guy is clearly super intuitive, super plugged into this world, you know? So I, I read his stuff and I trust it, but am I going to trust the random chick on Instagram talking about her dreams? Right. Maybe, maybe not. Like, I'm not going to, you know,
0: that's, yeah,
1: it's, it's, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a constant honest, I think. Right. Groping of, of, the ineffable
0: right well just to speculate briefly about how precognition works and precognitive dreams i had this meme that i had reposted um which i just pulled up here that this is just a meme i don't exactly even know the source uh where it drew this information but what it says is time is not linear it is holographic Everything, including the past and future, are all happening right now. Um, Time is a man-made 3D construct. In higher dimensions, there's no such thing as time because we experience everything happening simultaneously and the now is one. So that's kind of saying the past and the future in the higher realm... Is like all happening now. And if we have access to that through heightened states of consciousness or dream consciousness, we can get glimpses of the future because time is not linear, it's holographic, as the meme is saying, which to me resonates. Yeah. To me personally resonates because I've definitely had, I've talked about it on a number of podcast episodes precognitions, precognitive dreams spec you know intuitions that a thing would happen and it did or straight up exactly the circumstance out of a dream unfolded before my very eyes and i was like what the fuck i totally had a dream about this exact thing with this exact person who said this exact thing Mm -hmm. that's nuts to me
1: yeah no i'm i'm on board with like about half of it i don't understand what he means by holographic i definitely agree that i mean even physics is telling us that time is essentially a dimensional layer, right? So if you okay. if you had a fifth dimensional POV, you would be able to either interact with time or you'd be able to see time, like, in a way that, like, I can't see time, whatever right. time is, I, you know? Um, and this is consistent with with a sort of Platonist idea, too, of, like I said, the lowest realm is actually the realm of soul because that's the realm of animation, right? That's yeah. the realm where stuff is changing and moving around and things are happening. Um, but really to the to the higher realm, like they to them it's probably either irrelevant or to that co- state of consciousness, it's above that, whatever that means mm-hmm. uh so in a way, I agree, but I also think from the perspective that we're forced to live out here, yeah. it it kind of doesn't matter even even if it really does matter, it's like if I punched you in the face and I was like, Hey, on some level, I didn't just punch you in the face. You know, it's kind of like that. Right. It's Right. It's like, well, it still hurts. The higher you didn't get punched in the face. That was just you,
0: you know? That's awesome. Well, um, just to conclude for people who took a liking to this idea of Platonism, Plato, Plotinus, you know, where would you recommend some solid resources? Um, I know you have your own show, your own channel, definitely you're yeah. talking about this stuff, but for people that are trying to learn more about it, you know, where would you point them? Well,
1: I d- I did just make a video on the soul as it pertains to Plato, Young and James Hillman. I do think that's a good place to start because it you, know. you can come in I made it for, you know, you have general knowledge of like Yeah, I'm I'm kind of familiar with the soul and whatever, but I don't really understand where, like, what Plato's ideas are and how this fits in with uh, more contemporary people like Carl Jung Mm -hmm. and with my own life. Like, I made it so it would make sense for you coming in with no knowledge. I mean, the the real answer is if you want to do the deep dive is, like, just start slowly reading some of the dialogues and watching videos on some of the dialogues and mm-hmm. hopefully from good people who are trying to look a little deeper into the more esoteric layers. As as you know, I really love this podcast called The Secret History of Western, esoteric- es- yeah. Western Esotericism. Yeah. Um, because the guy who hosts it is a classicist. So he has a PhD in ancient, you know, the, the whole ancient corpus of wisdom. Yeah. And then he went and got another degree in specifically Western esotericism. So he's really knowledgeable. He's really looking at it in a pretty unbiased way. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has a whole series on Plato, and it just, it, it's deep. Like, it's yeah. it's deep stuff, but it's really, really good. And I find myself going back and re-listening to episodes because there's just so much information and so many little anecdotes and stories. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the Enneads too. I mean, the Enneads, Plotinus' writings are so so good just to read bits and pieces of, or if you just want to start really light, just look up quotes, look up like Plotinus quotes. Yeah. Um, but you do have to be careful because there's a lot of, there's a lot of misappropriated Plato quotes out there, for mm. instance. Like like I said, in his dialogues, he's not a character. So if you see a quote attributed directly, like Plato said, we're all one or something like that. It's like, mm-hmm. did he? Because he doesn't talk in his dialogues. Like it's it's got to be, Interesting. you know, um, you yeah, gotta be That's, a little careful, but has there been a, like a movie ever made about him? Like a fiction, like a, I'm sure there has, but I, am not sure. Yeah. Not that I, not that I'm aware. I of. learned
0: really well through film. Um, I wonder if there's, if there hasn't been, someone should make a dope ass feature film about the life of him and include the esoteric
1: part. Oh yeah. I mean, there's definitely documentaries and stuff. Um, yeah. but I'm talking yeah, about
0: like a, like a movie, like a two hour fucking well-made good actors that'd be sick
1: yeah it Uh, would yeah it would man yeah that that would be one of my first stops for sure if i could go back in time is like what the hell was going on at plato's academy what Mm -hmm. was going on at the Eleusinian mysteries what was going on in ancient egypt you know Mm -hmm. i would love to know but the problem is is that man you'd probably have to go through a decade of education for them to let you into the the inner circle you know
0: yeah yeah maybe one day (laughs) well thank you so much michael for your time today um for all the listeners you know you can find michael at third underscore i underscore drops on instagram you have your youtube channel third eye third eyedrops.com i believe right yep yep So, yeah, I recommend everyone go give Michael a follow if you guys haven't already. Um, Definitely really enjoy your content, your podcast. Oh, yeah, your podcast third eye drops on all podcast platforms. Well, okay, thank you once again, Michael, for being here. And thank you to all the listeners for getting this far. And we'll see you on the next episode.
1: Bye.